you, Rob. Before we look at God's Word, let's, uh, it's always good to talk to the author before we look at the book. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for um, waking us up to your abundant life, the life that was made sure by your resurrection. As we enter these, as we continue on in this, this Easter season, we continue to look to you as uh, the place of our hope and uh, the place where, um, where we will enjoy the abundant life that you have given us. We wish to feel your grace attending us through the places and our scars and our brokenness, and we ask you to invite us to go deeper into your love. Just as you hold the universe together with your grace, we ask that you hold us together. Hold us together as a body, hold us together as individual and, and, and emotionally and psychologically and, and spiritually. We want to deepen our understanding so that we don't drift around in, in the midst of um, doubts and lies and, and uncertainty, but to hold on to your security. We don't want to miss the mark of live your living truth. We ask you to teach us to recognize the voice of the shepherd as Mary recognized him, that you help us to listen when he calls our name. We ask you to give us strength to stand, stand for what is pure and what is true and what is just and what is good. We ask you to empower us to discern what is right and that you uh, help us to put your will and your desires above our own interests that we would put principle above reputation and we will put you above everything else. Father, we ask you to help us today and this week as we look into your word to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us. Give us the heart like his, a heart that is brave and true and tender. Give us a heart that is open, open to others, to receive them in the hospitality of our souls, that we have lots of room in it for the people you bring across our paths. And Father, I ask that you deliver us from ourselves and that you take us into your grace and into your forgiveness this morning. In Jesus Christ, amen. Like Kendra said, we are continuing on in the book of Hebrews uh, this morning, uh, going on to, to Hebrews chapter 10. And it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful chapter. We will look at that a little bit later and get into detail. Uh, E.B. White, he wrote uh, Stuart Little and, and uh, Charlotte's Reb. He, he says this, uh, humor, he's talking about humor. Humor can be dissected as a frog can, but the thing dies in the process, and the innards are discouraging to any but the pure scientific mind. <laughs> that, that is so true. You try to analyze a joke, and it just, just dies. I, I remember putting... Far Side cartoons on my wall at, at, at my office back in the back in the 80s, and the associate pastor was had an office next to mine, and uh, he was asking about this one where this cat was up against the window like this, and outside was like you know uh, Bob's small birds and and Bill's rodents, and they crashed in each other, and so rodents and fly, and birds are flying everywhere, and the birds sitting out the window like this, you know, all this anticipation stuck inside, and Craig is looking at it, and he goes, so. The bird wants to get outside. I mean, the cat wants to get outside, and the, 
is the, the mice he wants to eat, you know, and I'm going, Craig, if you got to explain it, it's not funny. You know, if, you, if, you, if I have to dissect it, it dies right there. Well, that's what he says about humor, and he's right. But I also think that's true about the gospel of forgiveness, the gospel of grace, that uh, we can try to study it, analyze it, dissect it, and, uh, and explore it, and what happens is that it ends up dying. And the only people that are really interested in it are theologians. And it just, it's there. You just, you just actually kill it. Well, I would say the author of Hebrews agrees with that. Uh, it, it sounds a little bit chewy because we're, because we're so far removed from the culture. But I would say he agrees with that, that he's not out there to try to explain all what we call today these theories of atonement. He's just laying it out there. He's using word pictures. He's using metaphors. He's using scripture. And he's saying, this is the truth. And, and this is where you need to go. And only somebody in their right mind, nobody in their right mind would go back to the old system. Nobody would do that if they, were, if they, were in their, if they weren't crazy. You stay with the new system because this is, what God has, this is what God has prepared. Nobody in their right mind would go backwards to that. And that's what he's doing here in chapter 10. He's, he's bringing all this, this whole thing to this final picture. He's been talking about the high priest of Jesus Christ ever since chapter 7. If you remember chapter 7, that's when he, promote, he, he, he presents Jesus as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he's a priest after the ordination of God, the selection of God, the anointing of God, not because of bloodline. And he, he, is, he is beyond that. And then he goes on to talk about the high priest, the work of the high priest in, in chapter 8. And that's where he's been ever since. And he's got this large section of dealing with Jesus as the high priest as this fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. That is the key passage here. Jeremiah 31, where, where God is telling Jeremiah, he says, Proclaim to the people that I will make a new covenant with you, that I will put in your minds my law, and I will write them on my heart, on your hearts, and, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. And one man will not teach another, and, and one man will not show his brother, know, say to the brother, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That is, the, that is the heart that he's trying to get at. That's the picture he's painting. Don't try to analyze it. This is it. And then he spends the rest of the section talking about that, trying to drive that point home. And finally, he reaches the culmination here in chapter 10. And then following this, he'll give some applications, which we'll look at next week. But... Right now, he's like, this is, this is what it's all about. And so it's a long passage. We're looking at verses 1 through 18. So we're not going to read through the whole passage, but we are going to look at sections of it. And the first four verses, again, he repeats that the old system, it's futile. It's, it's ineffective. It's God, what God ordered it. It's all, it's all, it's in its majesty. It's all great, but it's basically ineffective. It always is pointing to something else. And he uses a different picture here. He says it's just a shadow of what reality is. It's like you've got this bright light from the future shining on the sacrificial system, the, the Jewish system, and it's all it is is a shadow of what reality is. The contrast is not spiritual and physical. It's not saying that Jesus' sacrifice was all spiritual and this is all physical. That's not the contrast. The contrast is future and present that the light from the future is shining on that and it's casting a shadow. And he said, but basically, it's, it's not effective. 
It doesn't do what it was supposed to do. It's just a shadow of what's to come. And he goes on to say that they, they do it over and over again, that they, they name the sacrifice endlessly year after year after year, but it makes no one perfect. Doing it again and again and again. I don't remember a whole lot about my personal wedding. I was in a fog, I think, that day. Uh, but uh, I do remember something. I can look at the pictures and kind of remember it. I do remember Katie's wedding. And they, you know, I remember the planning that went into that and how they just wanted it to be perfect. Because normally this is kind of a once-in-a-lifetime deal, this big wedding, you know. And, and it, it was. It was It was beautiful. It was just a wonderful, wonderful day to be, to meet new people and be with family, and, and it was just really, really pleasant. But you don't do that every year. If I, ha if I said that Sue and I had to get married every single year, you would think that's a pretty good indication that those vows didn't work, <laughs> that something's not right here, that we have to keep getting married every single year. If I have to keep taking my car back to a mechanic, to get the same problem fixed, you would know, first of all, I didn't take a Taylor Automotive, okay? <laughs> but the second thing you would know is that this mechanic's not being real successful in fixing my problem. And that's what he's saying here, that you're doing this over and over and over and over again because it doesn't work. It maybe gets you to a, a, a small place at this moment, and you're still a member of the people of Israel. That's all great, but it really doesn't do what sin, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do and remove sin. In fact, he says in verse 4, he says, but those sacrifices are annual. They're just a reminder of your sins. Let that sink in a minute. That every time we visit, every time you do these sacrifices, he's saying, it's just a reminder of my failures, a reminder of my, my shame and my regret and my guilt and what I've done to other people, and what people have done to me. And it's just a reminder year after year after year. And then in verse 4, he says it straight out, bulls and goats do not remove sin. He just lays it right out there. It's futile. And the, the consequences of that is that there's no security. There's no hope. There's really no feeling of peace that comes from this system. Only a fool would go back to something like that. But in verse, oh, sorry, that was the wrong, uh, that was the wrong verses I put up there. Sorry about that. In the next section, verses 5 through 11, we have the efficacy of the new covenant. And he talks about, and, and what the author likes to do, he likes to take Old Testament passages and, and show them that the Old Testament itself says this was redundant. The scriptures themselves promising something new, that this is, this is temporary. And so that's what he's doing in verses 11, uh, 5 through 11. And we're gonna, we are going to read that. He comes back and he's quoting from Psalm 40 now, the psalm that, that uh, Rob just read. He says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased, and then he said, here I am, it is written about me in the scrolls. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, you, but you, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. And then he said, here I am, 
I have come to do your will. And he sets aside the first to establish the second. And by, the, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. He loves that word once and for all. And so he uses Psalm 40, which is, a, which is a Psalm of David. David, of course, is the king of Israel. He's immersed in the system. He knows all about the sacrificial system. He knows about the Day of Atonement. He knows about the daily sacrifices. And yet he says in all of that, that God did give us, in all of its majesty, that's fine. But this is not really what God wants. God wants something else. This is just an external transaction. And what God is seeking is a changed heart. What God is seeking are changed people, a renovating people, a gift of forgiveness that is astonishing. That's what he's after. That's what he's looking for. And notice the repetition, the repetition here in this section that he came into the world. He had a body. Here I am. I have come. Here I am. I have come. Sacrifice the body. This is not a contrast of physical versus spiritual or material versus the invisible. This, there's nothing more physical than the body of Jesus Christ come incarnate. And that, that's, last, a couple of weeks ago I mentioned that, that we were not saved by the death of Christ. And I could hear a few gasps in that. <laughs> what? We are saved by the person of Christ. And nothing is more clear than that than right here. That the incarnation is just as much a part of redemption as the crucifixion and the resurrection. That if Jesus did not come and live in solidarity with us, then the cross would lose all of its significance. This is how he bridges the gap between gods and humans. He invades the earth. He lives among us. And he absorbs all our worst on himself. If he was not the embodiment of the Godhead, then the cross loses its significance. It's so important that we understand that this is in solidarity, that he offers himself, that this is what God was looking for. And this isn't, Psalm 40 is not the only place that mentions that. 1 Samuel mentions it. Isaiah chapter 1 emphasizes it. Hosea 6, that's the verse that Jesus quoted twice. That God did not desire sacrifices. It was a stopgap. It was the point ahead. It was the point to something. You may have noticed uh, recently that uh, we have a painting over here. I'd like to see a lot of paintings in this room, actually. A lot of photographs, art in this room. Well, we have our first one donated by Gigi Murphy over here, and it's called Signpost. And it's all about pointing signs to the cross. And that's exactly what the book of Hebrews is all about. That's what he is saying here, that all these things are signposts pointing to the real thing. Pointing to the man who lived, the God who became man for us. And that it's every bit as a part of the, of, the, of the redemption as it is the crucifixion. He goes on to say that this is solidarity, that this, this is over and over and over again. He said these animals that we sacrifice, they were stand-ins for God's self-giving love. And now Jesus is the real thing. It is the example of the all-suffering Jesus who is, who is actually God himself, who is an expression of God's self-giving love. 
And not only did he take in all the suffering, human suffering of victims and the oppressed, he also took in all the suffering of the oppressors. His forgiveness extended to those who were doing the oppressing, who were doing the murdering, who were doing the killing and the executing. That's what makes it so astonishing that the gift of Jesus' forgiveness is the most astonishing gift he gives us. And we can't dissect it or we kill it. We just have to just absorb it and feel it and let it come in. It is more, the gift of forgiveness is more astonishing than the miracles. The miracles, they broke physical rules. Forgiveness breaks moral rules because forgiveness is unnatural. That's why I've called it the unnatural act of forgiveness. It's not something we do instinctively. It's not fair. It's unjust. It's unnatural. His forgiveness breaks the rules of morality. And that's what makes his gift more astonishing than ever. It is just not natural that God has given up his right to get even and instead has absorbed it all on himself and bears the most cruel act upon himself to bring forgiveness to us. In the last section, I wonder if I got that verse right. I did. The last paragraph brings into this, this culmination of this whole idea, this unnatural act of forgiveness. And let me go ahead and read those verses as well. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when the priest had offered all the time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstools, because by one sacrifice he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with him. And after the time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where there has been forgiven, there no longer is any, where there has been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Did you catch the monotony of all that? Day after day, sacrifice after sacrifice, religious duties again and again and again. And he says only the power of the cross can do that. Only the power of the cross will defeat those enemies. And we still like to think of the warrior coming. But according to the way I read the New Testament, the sin was defeated on the cross. That's when the enemies were defeated. And we await this, that this is the victory that is coming. And this is what gives us assurance that we're on the winning side. I'm going to disagree with some, uh, some people. You, you ever now, I don't know if you hear this much anymore, but you used to hear that, that if, in order to make sure you were saved, you had to persevere to the end. In other words, your perseverance gave you assurance of your salvation. Well, that's backwards. 
That's backwards. The assurance gives us the strength to persevere. Knowing that we are on the winning side, knowing that we are safe, knowing that we are forgiven, that gives us the ability to persevere to the end. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Casablanca. If you haven't, shame on you. <laughs> Best movie ever made. At the end of the, it's just a movie about people doing the right thing. And at the end of the movie, Victor Laszlo, he's a, a, uh, he works for the, the French underground, and Humphrey Bogart finally comes around to join the fight. And Victor Laszlo tells him, welcome back to the fight. Our side will win. And then you see him walking off in that famous line, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And that's what does it. His surety, his, his security that this is going, we're going to win this one. It's when we think we're defeated that we give up. It's when we think it's no use that we give up. But our security, our assurance is what keeps us going to persevere to the end because I know this time righteousness will win. Joy will win out. Forgiveness will win out. Mercy will win out over, over revenge. Love will win out because the scriptures say so. And he says, if, if this is not God on the cross, if what he did was not complete, if we think we have to add anything to this, he's saying if you have to keep going back and repeating all this other stuff and you want to go back, then you're saying that what Christ did on the cross was not quite enough. And anytime we go after anything else, and you've probably heard lots of people say this, if you go after anything else about what you can do, what you want to add on to it, what you need to repeat, what the pastor can do or what the church can do, what anything else, you add anything on this, then you're saying the cross was not complete. But it is. It is fulfilled. It is complete. It is done. This is what God has wanted all along. Not an external transaction, but an internal redemption, an internal salvation, a remaking of the heart. That's what he's looking for. No one else can do this except him alone. He is doing for us what we cannot do for himself. He forgives, and that is an unnatural act. It goes against our instincts. Most of you know the story of Joseph from, from, uh, the, from Genesis and uh, real quickly, if you don't, uh, Joseph uh, was, was sold into slavery by his family, by his brothers, and he ended up in Egypt, and he ended up in prison, and then things happened, and, and sure enough, he kind of actually has great success in the Pharaoh's kingdom in Egypt. And well, his family, his brothers are needing help, needing food, they come to him, or come to Egypt to get food, but they don't recognize that it's Joseph. They think Joseph's dead. And Joseph hides his identity to him from them. And at the end, when he's trying to get them all, see, how they're, see if they've changed, see if they've changed their heart with his youngest son, with his youngest brother, Benjamin, whatever. I'm not going to tell the details here. You can go back and read. It's a great story. Um, but he comes and he's about ready to reveal his identity to his brothers. But before he does that, he can't keep himself together. So he goes off into another room and wails, the Bible says. Wails so loud that the entire house of Pharaoh is listening. They're going, is he okay? What's wrong with him? Well, nothing is wrong with him. That's the sound of a man forgiving. That's how gut-wrenching that can be. Because when we forgive, we have to say, forget that we were betrayed or abandoned. 
or hurt or ignored or even something as valuable as our family taken away from us. It is not natural. It is not instinctive. If you go back and look at all of Jesus' parables, these parables are not about teaching us how to behave, teaching us how to live. All of his parables are about changing our ideas about God and how God operates, that he invaded, that he invaded the world. He lived in solidarity among us, and he absorbed the cruel deed on himself. He has shattered the law of sin and vengeance, completely shattered it. David Siemens is a um, uh, counselor that I really depended on his books when I was in youth ministry. He's one of the guys who brought the word bonding into our normal vocabulary uh, several years in the 80s. Anyway, he says this. He says, many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. One, the failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional love and forgiveness. And number two, the failure to give out that unconditional love and forgiveness. He considers that to be the root of most emotional problems. It is an unnatural act. When we were in Iowa and lived in Northwest Iowa, we lived in probably one of the most conservative congressional districts in the country. And Steve King was our congressman. And uh, I heard him speak once. He spoke at another Christian college just in Sioux Center, uh, not too far away at Chapel. And he was speaking in the chapel, and he says that um, if we really wanted to help um, developing countries, he says, that capitalism has done more for developing countries than all the missionaries combined. And then he goes on to say, if we want to really help these developing countries, we need to send more businessmen and less missionaries. And he's got a point. He's, got, he's right in some, to some extent. You don't have to be a Christian to promote economic flourishing, economic prosperity. You don't have to be a Christian to build houses or feed the hungry or heal the sick. A lot of things the world does just as well or better than we do. But the one thing the world cannot do is offer forgiveness. That is the one thing the world cannot do that we do. We offer faith, grace, and forgiveness. When Jesus met the woman at the well, he didn't say, oh, you're, you're living in total, completely immoral life. He didn't tell her that, um, you know, you're just paying the consequences of all your bad choices through the years. Uh, he didn't say, you know, and what you're doing now is pretty immoral too. In fact, I'm kind of repulsed by you. He didn't say that. What did he say? Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? That's our question. Are you thirsty? We've got so many thirsty people out there. And we should be serving forgiveness on tap here at Shepherd of the Valley. And it's 
We've got forgiveness and grace on tap, and it's open bar. Come on in. We give forgiveness. We offer grace. That's what we do that the world cannot do. Based on Jesus Christ. Hebrews Hebrews says that the, the old covenant is just an external transaction. And he's saying nobody in their right mind would go back to that. And I'm here to say this morning, n- nobody in their right mind would go back to the system we, were out of, we came out of. That would be crazy. That this is where we find it. The old system is like a poisonous, odor, odorless gas that kills. The lack of forgiveness, the seeking of, virgi- of vengeance, the scapegoating, the blaming, it kills. It kills people, and it's killing our society. Amen. It's killing our civilization. This is what we offer. We offer forgiveness. This is what the world cannot offer. Offer. We can see it all around us. The father who, who dies unforgiven. The mom who won't speak to her daughter. The man who still can't forgive the drunk driver who took his family. The friend we can't forgive because of some disparaging remark when she wasn't feeling well. It's not natural. But God provides a way. This is the way. This is what brings the salvation. This is what brings forgiveness. This is what brings our security. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have done away with this this law of scapegoating and sin and vengeance. And Father, we confess that... that, um, We don't always feel forgiven. And we keep revisiting those sins and regrets and shames and guilt. And we keep bringing it up with people we love. Father, we thank you for taking that cruel deed on yourself. And reshaping it in the form of a remedy for us. In Jesus' name, amen.